Welcome back, guys, to episode 24 of the JPS podcast. I'm Jacob Skeppis, and today on the show, we have senior coach for the USA powerlifting team and competitive powerlifter, Hani from the Strength Athletes. And Hani has a passion for powerlifting. Um, he's coached a lot of really successful athletes and really emphasizes falling in love with the process. I'm extremely excited to have him on the show today. So welcome, Hani. Uh, thank you. I am. I'm excited to be here as well. I noticed you conveniently didn't try to pronounce my oh, last name. I was name. just about to mention that. <laughs> I, I saw the. Uh, I don't the know pause. If, if you're listening. If you're listening with only audio, you, there was a, there was a slight look of blank horror uh, as after he said my first name. It's pronounced Jazzarelli. Just so Jazzarelli. you know. I was actually uh, meant to ask you this before we started uh, the Skype. <laughs> My bad. It's no no problem at all. (laughs) I I saw I saw right through that. You're probably the millionth person to give me that look, so I I totally understand. (laughs) Oh, I appreciate your understanding. So, guys, today we're going to be discussing all things powerlifting, as well as some uh, coaching discussion, uh, and delve into some of the specific comp day problems and issues that we see with competitors. We're going to be talking about that. So. Honey, do you want to give listeners a little bit of a background as to how you got into the sport of powerlifting? Yeah, I, absolutely. So I, I originally started training when I was about 14 years old. I was playing football, American football. And um, do you guys call that football in Australia? We have our own uh, code, which is Australian rules football, very different to okay. uh, gridiron. Not to be confused with rugby. And not to be confused with the European version of football. Correct. It depends so on your nationality and which state you live in. Exactly. What kind of accent you have, right? Do you call it soccer there? We call it soccer. And uh, okay. those with a Western origin background call it football. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Anyway, so uh, I originally gridiron American rules football. And um, I happened to go through a school that had a, a pretty big emphasis on strength training in the off season. Uh, our programming was actually surprisingly aggressive. We were squatting four days a week. We were doing clean power cleans, not clean and jerk, power cleans two days a week, snatches two days a week, bench pressing or some sort of pre- pressing variation three or four days a week. And naturally, because we were in high school, girls every day. And um, <laughs> we even had we even had a dedicated mirror in, in, in our weight room. Uh, it, it was a great weight room, though. We had uh, all the Leco equipment, and it was, uh, it was surprisingly surprisingly nice to you, not what you would typically expect to see at high school. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up kind of, well, I was, I was soft as a young man and I had some disagreements with my coach. And so I stopped playing football, but I kept training with weights and, you know, I naturally found my way onto the internet and to bodybuilding.com, like so many of the rest of us. And through there, I kind of got this idea that I, I wanted to be a bodybuilder because I was always very overweight, overweight when I was younger. And I like that you laugh at that. Cause I laugh at that now too. And, uh, <laughs> And so I, I linked up with Alberto Nunez from Team 3D Muscle Journey, uh, who has been my longtime coach now, and started pursuing uh, a prep for bodybuilding. I was doing it for the wrong reasons, uh, kind of vanity more than anything, trying to, you know, I'd, all I wanted was those those pictures that everybody reposts for the rest of their lives from the one show they've ever done. And yeah, <laughs> which which is a very, very real thing. It's uh, so throw, true. Throwback Thursday. Throw throwback record. Thursday with a different angle photo on like a six photo rotation every six weeks. Um, and uh, and you delete the old posts so people don't know. <laughs> so spot on. 
<laughs> and uh, so I, I got to about eight weeks out, and I was I was pretty lean. Um, I wasn't what I would now consider appropriate for eight weeks out for natural bodybuilding. Now that I have an understanding of it, um, you know, I would have been fine at an amateur show, but uh, I the standard that I see is uh, I look at Alberto Crazy. Nunez at, at, at about I look at him at about twelve weeks out, and I consider that where most people should end up. Yeah. And um, and so I, I wasn't eight weeks away from his 12 weeks out condition and I had developed a little bit of an eating disorder and I was basically all, all stars were aligned and it was a perfect storm of stuff to, for me to crash and burn and, uh, crash and burn I did and hard, uh, I rebounded pretty hard, probably gained about 30 pounds to 40 pounds in the next month. And, uh, I, I was just, it was, I was so emotionally tied into what I was eating and I didn't have the correct motivations for going through the diet. And, you know, this is, this is a, a tale as old as, well, I want to say tale as old as time, but it's not really, but it's as long as people have been dieting for vanity, mm. people have crashed and burned while dieting for vanity. Right, and I was a perfect example of that. But during that process, uh, you know, Alberto made the astute observation as did a few people in my gym that I was quite strong and, um, and, and suggested to me that I should try powerlifting. And... And so I did. And the first meet I did actually was uh, uh, Brad Loomis is another coach for Team 3D Muscle Journey. And my first competition was at his gym in Portola, California, uh, which is the middle of nowhere, by the way. Um, and and so I did the first the first meet I ever competed at there uh, and absolutely fell in love with the sport. And from from there forward, uh, up to that point, prior to working with, with Alberto uh, and kind of in on and off periods, I had kind of done my own training, played with various different programs between like Westside and 531 and uh, Max OT style training, if you're familiar with that. And and then just any combination of the above that I came up with myself. And, and then working with Alberto, worked with some RPE, auto-regulation, um, eventually some daily undulating periodization. And then more recently, I have, not anymore, but I, I previously worked with uh, Dr. Mike Zordos from FAU, uh, who is a very, very smart guy. Uh, and I had a, an excellent opportunity to learn a whole bunch from him that has translated into several improvements in my coaching. And, and basically, that, that kind of brings, brings us up to, to where I am now, which is... Kind of finally, I would say I'm. I wouldn't say I'm on the mend anymore. I think I'm finally up to full speed again for the first time in a while, and it's it's very exciting for me. I, I spent prior to about let's say prior to about 12 months ago, I spent the 18 months before that with a new pretty serious injury every four to six weeks, and you know that was that was just a matter of training too hard in you know the synergistic effect of training too hard with ill preparation to train yep. and all of that together with me you know taking the lane norton mentality of you know just grit through it get through it like team i can work. do this team outwork i tried to i tried to outwork my existing injuries yeah. and basically one would fall behind and become not noticeable and a new one would surface and so it, it obviously compounded into this mountain of shit and that's all behind me at this point. Fortunately, I, I've changed my habits. I've changed the way that I approach individual training sessions. Uh, I've changed the way that I prepare, excuse me, and the way that I set my expectations for individual sessions and for entire training cycles. And in doing that, I think I've enabled myself to be much more successful as a, as an athlete, as, as a client myself of another coach. Mm. And, and also I'm able to empathize with the people that I coach much more effectively. And it, it's, it's largely changed the way that I coach athletes. I try to impart more of a long-term mentality into my mm -hmm. athletes than, you know, a lot of the coaches that are out there are, you know, the, sure, I could, I could write a program that'll put 50 pounds on your squat in 10 weeks, probably, but I won't give you that program. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, you know, that's not, 
that's not my my role is to is to make you stronger sure but it's not just to make you as strong as possible as fast as possible there is such a thing as gaining strength too quickly in my opinion definitely and you touched on a lot of the things that i wanted to talk about today so obviously you are now working uh, as an online coach with the guys at the strength athlete um, and they're one of the probably the largest uh, com- companies coaching powerlifters and strength-based athletes uh, at the moment and you guys are doing some great work so obviously traditionally coaching has been face-to-face and you mentioned that you've been coached uh, back at high school and you know growing up as part of your sport so how do you take the practice of coaching into an online setting and still get positive outcomes so, you know, you, you approach things a little bit differently. So in-person coaching, it's, it's, it's rare that you see a good combination of, and I won't say it doesn't exist, but there are a few examples that you can come up with of a good in-person coach who's writing excellent programming, giving excellent technique feedback, providing excellent meet day coaching, and doing it for a lot of people all at the same time. And so, you know, when you, when you really break that down, excellent programming is something that's more people can do than they give themselves credit for when it comes down to come when it, or rather when you when you really kind of drill down to the bottom level we're all working from the same set of principles those of us who are writing sound programming and as long as you're kind of within the scope of that box mm-hmm. of rules your program's going to do fine if if it's progressively overloading if people aren't getting hurt running it specific they're going to get it's specific to some degree they're going to they're going to get stronger it's it's really not a a a miraculous combination of stuff. There's no magic to it. It's just a matter of intelligently interpreting what the signs people get back to you. And so, so programming and, you know, it's, I don't think the programming in person versus distance is pretty much the same. Uh, technique feedback is where things get interesting. And this is something that I've gotten better at with time. And so the, this is somewhere where I differ from a lot of coaches, and I wouldn't say a lot, but let's say some of the more old school coaches and some of the in-person coaches who have a reputation for their technique style. Someone like Mark Ripito comes to mind. He has a very, very classic style of how he wants his lifts to look, whereas more of how I do my coaching is is a little bit more with some freedom of bodily proportions to come to come into that equation. So, you know, the the length of your torso relative to the length of your femur, relative to the length of your lower leg versus the length of your arm, all of these things are going to dictate kind of the angles of your body throughout the course of any given lift. And more or less outside of that, those are, you know, everybody's going to look different based on that. And so out Outside of that, there's a few bad habits we should avoid, right? Like rounding in the low back in the squat or the deadlift. Uh, for certain people, rounding in the upper back, people who have, let's say, a short torso probably shouldn't be rounding their back in the deadlift, the upper back. Uh, things like arching heavily in the low back in the bench press or not setting up on the top of your uh, on the top of your shoulders in the bench press and not getting yourself all tucked in and really tight and having bad habits like that. Essentially, the good habits of good lifts are the things that you can coach very easily. Mm-hmm. And I can give I can give examples. I can make those examples myself in video. I can find examples of people doing them successfully, and people can learn how to do them. I can't physically move them into place, yep. but I can make small changes over time. And so, in understanding how to make those small changes over time, while also giving people the freedom to work within kind of what the proportions of their body dictate, I'm able to effectively coach technique over time. Now, some people, uh, I find that if you try to apply a textbook approach where, you know, there's a right answer uh, mm-hmm. on onto distance-based uh, 
powerlifting technique coaching, then it becomes more challenging because you start to try fitting a square peg in a round hole while using, you know, uh, a digitally controlled arm, so to speak from a distance. And it's, it's not, not a simple task. And so within the context of that, uh, I kind of know my limits. And then sometimes if it's, if it's someone recovering from an injury, I'll be the first person to refer them to a professional. You know, I try to stay within my, within my scope of ability. And I have this from from the experience I've had with the several injuries I've had, I have kind of a, a tool belt, if you will, of things we can try. But I, I am more than happy to refer mm. people out. And, and honestly, I would much rather do that because oftentimes they're going to get either a faster answer or a better answer than what I can help them to find. And so I try to stay in my lane with that, you know? Yeah, definitely. And obviously you work with a lot of athletes, as you mentioned over a very long distance you've even got some athletes in australia so what are some of the difficulties you face when you're working with someone online uh you know it's i have at this point i've worked with enough people that i kind of have a set of variables that i'll have people track uh in their training and it it varies from person to person some people have uh, a strict body weight goal they're trying to lose five kilos and they need to lose it to be able to do their competition they are trying to add to their total, whatever amount. The number is obviously bigger based on how young they are in the sport. And as well, they're trying to improve their technique. And additionally, they want to enjoy their training. And, and so in doing all of those things, uh, it, it's if you can create a protocol that achieves all of those things, you, you've really kind of hit the mark in my opinion. And, and I would say the that wasn't in any particular order, but I would say enjoying the training is probably the number one thing that a lot of people don't really account for. And I, I try to explain this to new clients when I when I Skype with them. It's, it's you're going to be, in my opinion, you're going to get, you're going to get more out of a program that you enjoy doing, that you look forward to, or at least that you don't dread than you will out of the best program in the world if you hate it. And that's, that's because you're going to go in with enthusiasm, you're going to go in with better expectations, and you're going to be more likely to stay on track. It's going to be easier for you to not deviate from. It's like a more lifestyle-fitting diet. Uh, the fact is, if you are on an overly restrictive diet, this has been researched and documented with what dietary choices anyway, the more you restrict your diet, the more you deviate from it. And the more you deviate from your diet, the less well it works. And there's this kind of critical ma- or critical point where deviation and dietary restriction cross over each other and you start to deviate more than you stick to your diet. And so kind of a similar principle applied to training, creating a training protocol that fits within the scope of what I define as the principles of what I want to see for effective training. While simultaneously, you know, someone wants to do curls every day, it's not a big deal. It's not going to take away from their training. So let's do curls every day. And, you know, someone wants to do wants to work in push ups in their program or lots of calf raises or I have a couple of girls that I coach who have the eventual goal of doing physique based competition. And so we spend some time on the beach muscles. And and so that's you know, that's not a problem whatsoever. And so by me being flexible to fit that in and I don't really have a holier than thou attitude like some people do. I will I am I am able to cater to what people want and create programs that they're going to be excited about. Also, some kind of way to regularly track their progress in training. So some sort of evaluation, some sort of uh, auto-regulated top sets on occasions. For some people, it's fully auto-regulated training programs. It really varies from person to person. Um, I would say the the biggest difficulty for, for actual programming is I like using auto-regulation because it's a great way to track progress. But keeping a lid on it for some people, there are, there, you know, and you kind of you kind of have to learn your, your athletes. And I, I try to have 
uh, the, the the long talk with people when I when I start them up, more or less to to find out what what camp they fall into. Are they a perpetual overshooter, undershooter, or are they going to hit the mark every time? And then as I learn about someone, I'll make changes. Right? If if what I want is a, a single and a nine RPE then for some people that means prescribing a single at a 7.5 RPE and they'll hit the nine. And I just know that that's going to be where that's going to end up. And they'll be like, oh, I totally had three more. And, and, you know, it's, and it's not that they're, it's not that they're, they're lying to me. They don't think they're lying. They, they just don't fully understand and that's fine. And so I just, you know, I create programs that kind of tilt in the other direction and then some people perpetually undershoot. And so I have to write all of their sets at a nine instead of at a 7.5 or an eight or whatever it may be. And so that that's one of the big challenges in programming is getting to know people. I, I always try to explain coaching as a data driven uh, process. So more more or less, the more I learn about someone, the more effectively of a training protocol or rather the more effective I can create a training protocol for them. And so over time, literally, the coaching gets better the more time you spend being coached. Uh, I, I, I can create a program that suits you. That's going to work. But oftentimes there's little tweaks we can make to make it better. And I'm not above admitting that. And anybody for anybody listening, if you, if you talk to a coach and they tell you, you can, they can create the best pot of possible program for you first time through, they're just trying to take your money, look somewhere else. And, uh, that's one of, one of the big tenets, you know, I don't, I don't promise to be the best is yet the best possible thing for someone the first time through. That's just not how coaching works. Uh, otherwise all programming would be done through some digital source, Someone would have already created a program that used this set of variables to create them all, and nobody would ever need a coach for anything but technique. And then, you know, there could be someone selling that for $10 a month and just submitting videos for feedback. So that, that's probably the, the most difficult part is keeping people honest in the programming. Uh, I would say the technique's easy. Most people are very open to that. There are some people who are difficult to work with because they enjoy particular things in technique, like uh, very round back deadlifters tends to be the number one thing that comes to mind that people are, are very rigid about. And, uh, you know, they, they say, I just feel better pulling this way. And that's fine. You know, they, they understand that they're forever going to struggle with their deadlift lockout. And that's just how it's going to be because, you know, you're, you're going to be able to pull more weight than you're going to be able to unround your back with. Okay. And that's the limitation there. And other than that, I would say most people are pretty reasonable with technical changes. Definitely. Uh, what? I think I think that and goal setting, I think, is probably the one thing. And I would say this is somewhere where I excel is helping people to set reasonable goals to prioritize competitions throughout the year mm. and to understand that, you know, sometimes if you're competing four weeks before your national championship to qualify or whatever it may be, that may mean pulling some of the heat off yeah. a little bit early and not pushing for that first competition because you want to perform at the subsequent one. Definitely. You bring up a lot of uh, really good points there. And obviously you mentioned that you worked with Alberto Nunez and Mike Zordos. So obviously they are both extremely knowledgeable and experienced dudes. So what are some of the key things that you learned from each of them and how did their approach differ, if at all? I think if if I were to sum this up in in one sentence or two sentences, however this is structured verbally, um, I would say I learned to coach from Alberto and I learned to program from Mike. Yeah. And I, I think that absolutely captures the essence of it. And I think you can talk to both of them and you'll kind of get this feeling from them. And I've definitely learned some programming from Alberto as well to to sell him short of that would be a disservice. But what what I really and and I. I take a lot of pride in having kind of modeled what I do after what Alberto does. I, it's, I try to be very involved in, in what's going on. Uh, I try to fully understand all the variables at play. And I also try to be very pragmatic. And 
in the, and, and I definitely get the pragmatism from from Alberto that, you know, it's just we got to get the job done. If that means going outside the the norm, then so be it. You know, if you if you can't squat to depth comfortably and squatting to a box is more comfortable, then we are going to do the pragmatic thing and going to do the comfortable version of the lift for as long as we can until we can get you back to the appropriate version of the lift comfortably. And that's just the way it's going to be. And sometimes making those little changes are essential or if someone's dieting and they're trying to make weight and we need to have them on a thousand calories a day, if making weight is essential to your success in this athletic endeavor, then that's what we're going to do. You know, there's it. It doesn't matter that oh well, you should be losing weight. If you're not, then you're not. You know, this is this is just how it has to be. Get out the famous carb scissors, as as Alberto is known for. Yeah. And uh, yeah, get out. I used to get that in my replies to my emails. He said, "Well, we're getting out the scissors this week," and you know, I always knew what that meant. Yeah. Um, where, whereas from Mike, you know, I, I ended up actually, I walked away with a, a more interesting perspective there than I thought I would. I originally, when I started working with him, it was when, you know, DUP was the internet rage. And it was like, everybody was like, oh, the DUP, three by eight, five by three, four by six. Ooh. And it was what everybody was excited about. And it was this vanilla program that, uh, believe it or not, is a little bit boring when you're dealing with the classic version of it. It's just not that cool. Uh, but as you kind of learn more and more about it, you just realize, you know, the, the DUB, the classic form is, is simply one rendition of a set of principles and all, all that it's really, all that it really breaks down to is that you're performing the competition lifts more than once per week with different rep ranges and intensities on those different days. So if you, if you take let's say a classical conjugate style of programming mm -hmm. and you do the competition lifts on both days. So you do a heavy squat one day and you do a very light squat another day. And those are your max effort and dynamic effort days. DUP Congratulations. Run. You're <laughs> doing DUP. If you, if you do five, three, one, and you're squatting two days a week, one day you're doing some light tens. Another day you're doing your heavy set of five DUP. Those are all daily undulating periodization protocols. And so as soon as that clicked in my head, I was like, oh, there's, there's nothing magical about this. I, I, it was, you know, it was kind of just working my way through it. And so understanding that it was good to see essentially how he does his progressions. And I, I changed the way I program a lot based on that week to week load increments and things like that based on uh, RPEs of final sets and movements and essentially having a goal set there. Um, I, I also learned that I don't like using AMRAPs in programming, <laughs> which is something that I used a lot of when I was doing that training and a lot about uh, approach to injury. Uh, unfortunately, that was probably 50% too aggressive of a training style for me just yeah. based on kind of how my body holds up. And so I spent a fair amount of time with uh, different physical therapists and essentially making training modifications to get as much done as I could while dealing with those injuries. And so I have a lot of those answers essentially in my back pocket for when those issues come up. And that's, I would say 20% of coaching powerlifting is understanding injury because people get hurt when they're moving around heavy loads. Mm. And that's just a fact. Everybody gets hurt in powerlifting. Eventually, if, if you're listening and you haven't gotten hurt, it's coming. Uh, it's like, it's like riding a motorcycle. Ask anybody who's been on a motorcycle for 15, 20 years, sooner or later, you're going to lay it down. And that's, that's just the way that it is. That's just destiny coming for you. Nobody is that careful and nobody's body is that resilient. Um, the, what you, the best thing you can do is understand that it, number one, it's not the end of the world. Uh, number two, you can make training changes to where you can still progress through an injury. And number three, you can go back to being as good and better than you were when you started. And so it's in doing that, I, I definitely gained an, an immense understanding of, 
the process, as you mentioned earlier. I have uh, a very great love for the process of training people in powerlifting, helping people to get better, and understanding injury is a huge part of that. For sure. And obviously, coachability and being able to be coached is really important because if we could simply just follow the perfect program um, and get technical feedback online, then we would not need a coach. But we know that coaches are an indispensable resource, especially in most athletic endeavors. So what are some of the qualities and characteristics that you expect or hope to see in your athletes so that you can A, do your job and B, coach them to the best of your ability? You know, I'm, I'm pretty simple in that. I, I ask for an open mind and enthusiasm about training. And if people can give me those two things, and obviously a lack of deviation, but I think that goes without saying. Uh, but if people can give me those two things, and, and you know, once in a while I'll get some some clients who come to me and they're very, very practiced in another training style. The one that most people have spent most of their time on is always conjugate for some reason. Um, but the people will come to me and be like, I've done this for so long. This is so different. I'm not sure. And inevitably and invariably, they they end up progressing regardless and understanding that it's, you know, there's nothing magic about conjugate. There's nothing magic about 531 or DUP or starting strength or any of these programs. They're, they're all different organizations of the same principles. And some of them simply cater better to how the body responds to training. And so I've... You know, and I find that the more the more people I coach, the more I learn, and the more my approach changes over time, or at least broadens, I guess you could say. But with that, I'm I'm variable enough that so long as someone is willing to to do what I tell them, and to to ask questions, to you know, challenge me in a way that that is critical but positive. You know, I'm I'm always I'm always willing to to do my best to explain why we're doing things the way that we're doing them, and sometimes that means the answer is going to be well because it works, but other times I have better answers than that, and um, I would say most times probably. And so long as they're you know like I said enthusiastic, thoughtful, and willing to follow the program, then pretty much that is those are the three tenets of coachability I would think. Yeah. Awesome. So that was a really good outline of what coaching is all about and what we require from athletes to be coached. But now I want to talk about some power lifting. So elevating mass in a perpendicular fashion. And I guess in order to do that, we need to master the soft skills of lifting, which is consistent setup and having rituals because we know they play a key role in how we execute a lift. So I always liken the setup to a lift as running a race and a poor setup means that you're 10 meters behind the starting line and always playing catch up. So can you explain to the listeners why the setup and having rituals for lifts is so important? So this actually comes comes a lot down to some mental skills and the, the reason I like a ritual, be it long or short, is that prior to the start of any initial rep of a set. And so I like to think of the first rep of any set as the same as a competition single. And I try to treat it as such. And in a perfect world, I'll treat all the subsequent reps with equal respect. And I kind of look at it as respecting the rep. And so more or less before, you know, before you go out to a, to a nice dinner, you, you take a shower, you get dressed, you shave, you do all these things that are, that are kind of a ritual, right? And that's because you, you're kind of respect that event. And so in a similar manner, I, I try to have this series of, physical actions that I'm going to do prior to performing a rep to, so that I ensure that I'm adequately prepared every time. So let's say rituals before you're under the bar, 
having some regular thing that you do that's not overstated. Uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of more subtle stuff or shorter at least that doesn't waste energy can help you to create repeatability in what you're doing. And having that repeatability is going to essentially help you to be exactly the same on every set and rep, which if you have, let's say a top tier setup, let's say you're bracing effectively, you're in good position, you're tight under the bar, you're moving through your rep effectively. If you're doing all those things right, basically by setting yourself up with some mental marker to lead you into that chain of physical actions, then you allow yourself to find that more easily. It's kind of like a muscle memory thing. So you can ask someone how they like, uh, something like a, a phone passcode comes to mind. There are a lot of people out there. You could ask them their phone passcode and they can't tell you what it is, but give them their phone and they can type it in. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, that's it's, uh, idea. I actually, I, I was just sitting in the Apple store and that's the reason this comes to mind is because I was just sitting in the Apple store and there was a girl sitting next to me at the genius bar getting some help and she couldn't remember, like the guy asked her what her code was and she had no idea. And he handed her the phone and she put it right in. And it's 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 a muscle memory thing. It's by putting the phone into your hand and unlocking it with with, you know, your well, I think she had an iPhone six. So she unlocked it with one of the buttons and then she could type the code right in. And she didn't have to think about it at that point. It became this subconscious repeated procedure. It was just automatic. It was just right away. And so you want that same thing. You want your lifts to become like a code. You basically you have step one, two, three, four, five. And every time you do it, you go through them. It's easy. It's repeatable. You don't have to think about it. And essentially, if you really had to, you could watch your lift and you could point out all of those steps for yourself. And so, like I said, I prefer something a little bit understated. So for me, I have a particular breathing pattern that I do before I unrack any squat. I prefer to start what I'm doing once I'm actually under the bar. And I do it every time I squat, every single time. Same thing with the bench press. Uh, I do something similar with the deadlift, but my, my heavy deadlift training is infrequent enough that it's, it's out of practice at the moment. Uh, but in doing that, I simply make myself more predictable in my training. And I can tell when something is off from the first breath. And so it helps me to be ready to address, let's say, off days in training or days when I'm doing something incorrectly and to mentally catch them. Just like you know, it's the same thing going back to the phone code analogy. You'll know as soon as you hit the incorrect number that you've hit it because it just something feels wrong with your thumb. And so similar, similar principle applies in, in lifting. You'll know as soon as you've done something wrong on your lift, obviously number one, because you're going to struggle with it. Yeah. But then number two, because it's going to feel wrong. And in an ideal world, you can look back on that and you'll know exactly where you went wrong. For sure. I think the take home point there is that a ritual can help unlock performance. Ideally, in long term. Yeah, for sure. And you spoke about how you've spent the last, you know, few years managing and carrying injuries due to simply overshooting, you know, training and so on and so forth. And it's well known that powerlifters are very prone to overuse injuries, consequence of (laughs) constantly training in the sagittal plane with heavy ass weights on a frequent basis. Um, so you mentioned that you've got a few more notches on your belt uh, in terms of dealing and managing these injuries. So what are some of those uh, notches and tools that you now have um, and how do you use them to keep injuries at bay? You know, the the number one thing I would say that nobody does, that everybody should do, uh, especially for powerlifters, is a cardiovascular warm-up before training. And it's not that getting your heart rate going is is what we're looking for, but getting some blood flow into the muscle groups that you're going to be using before actually doing any stretching or mobilization goes a huge way. 
And so for me, what that looks like is before lower body exercises, I spend three minutes or five minutes on an upright bike Mm -hmm. and with almost no resistance at whatever moderate pace. My goal isn't to do cardio work there. It's just to get blood flowing through my legs. And as it happens, uh, the motion of pedaling a bicycle is actually a decent mimetic of getting into a squat and is using basically every single muscle involved in that exercise. And so you, you warm up everything there and that rotational movement is perfect for that. And then before pressing, I have been doing three to 500 meters on a rower, something like a concept two rower. And I find that those two have gone a longer way towards keeping everything at bay than anything else that I've implemented prior to starting those. And I feel fantastic on days when I do them. And I I have a noticeable difference on days when I don't. And it may have gotten to the point where I've mentally tied feeling good to doing those. And so some days where I maybe wouldn't have needed to do them, I do them anyway, or I feel bad because I didn't. But I'm I'm willing to accept that it's three minutes out of my day and I can always spare three minutes. Second to that for, for most people is going to be understanding the difference between mobility for the sake of mobility and mobility for the sake of positioning. Mm. And so more or less, if you can get into a comfortable position for your lift, uh, every if you let's say you can you can get to depth at your squat, you're you can dorsiflex such that you know you don't have to do any ankle mobility and your shoulders can get into a comfortable position under a bar, and you can do all of these things without doing any mobility before training, you should be spending precisely zero time on mobility. I completely and agree. That's, and that's something that a lot of people don't or, or are spending too much time on and wasting time. They could be spending either better warming up, doing one or two extra sets prior to their work weight, or spending three or four minutes on a bike before squatting, or doing some you know, dynamic stretching before getting under the bar. But instead, they're spending time actually in terms of the physical sense accomplishing nothing, rolling around on a lacrosse ball. You know, there's, you're not actually breaking up any tissue there. If you were, you would have holes in your skin. Yeah. And uh, so it, it essentially understanding the purpose of mobility and utilizing it appropriately. So for me, for example, I can't sit down into a squat position comfortably without spending some time working on my hips as well as my ankles. And so what am I doing before every squat session? I'm mobilizing my hips and I'm mobilizing my ankles. And how much time do I spend on that though? Two to three minutes tops each. That's it. And because I don't need more than that, there's, there's zero requirement for that to be prepared to train. So I use that period for preparation purposes. And third to that, like I said, is that dynamic stretching. So I like to do a little bit of stretching on all the muscles involved in any movement prior to actually getting into training. This is a personal thing because I have had, uh, the issues that I've had have been largely tendonitis. And essentially I find that I'm more comfortable performing my lifts. If I do just some light, um, forget the name of it, that standing quad stretch, uh, do some, some light stretching on my quads some light stretching on my calves a little bit very limited amount on my hamstrings and glutes prior to squatting. I simply feel better when I squat if I do that. I'm not spending 30 or 40 seconds each on them. We're talking two to three seconds alternating between these muscles back and forth in a very dynamic fashion while moving around. Outside of that, if you have bad habits in your lifts, uh, some sort of cueing to get you to, to avoid those. So for example, if you tend to collapse your knees or have knee valgus during your squats, warming up with a band around your knees is going to essentially cue you to push out those knees while you're squatting. Uh, little little habit changing items like that during the course of your warmups tend to be good for you, but beyond that, there's not a whole lot more you should be doing. But the problem is, almost nobody does all of that. And in reality, once once you've learned what you need, once you've invested the time to figure out what you need, this takes less than ten minutes daily. 
less than 10 minutes on the front of a two hour training session to help you prevent those injuries. And if everybody did that, I think there would be a drastic reduction in, in injuries just because people would be more prepared. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny. It's not, it's probably, I would say probably 10% of powerlifting injuries are maximal lift related. They're probably generally, you know, the maximal lift ones are the traumatic injuries where you have a tendon detaching or something like that or a torn muscle. And, you know, we've all seen those videos where someone's pec rolls up and, and those things, obviously no amount of warming up is going to prevent that. But in in the case of overuse injuries, appropriate warmups and managing your training volume both go a long way towards that. Managing the training volume is obviously a different discussion and depending on who coaches you or what signs they're tracking or things like that, they'll handle that differently. But, you know, managing that warm up appropriately and listening to your body and, you know, being willing to change individual sessions Uh, to use myself as an example yesterday or rather Monday, I did, I had a, I had a really big squat session uh, for my own standards and my back was absolutely just trashed at the end of that session. And basically all day Tuesday, it was, it was awful. Uh, I just felt terrible, could hardly even get out of bed. And, um, so going, going into squat yesterday, I didn't have really high expectations. I was prepared to perform a full intensity session if, if it was there, but it turns out it wasn't worked up to, uh, what was 182, five kilos. So four or five, uh, basically for, for a couple of repetitions, they felt pretty terrible. And so I dropped down to, you know, 140 kilos and did, did some sets of five there just to get some repetitions in and essentially kind of keep that recovery cycle going as, as it normally is on a weekly basis. And I chalked up that session to just not feeling great. And I didn't walk out of the gym feeling like I had failed in some way. In fact, I had succeeded by doing as much as I was capable of without further injuring myself on the day. And that is probably the biggest difference in my mentality now versus where I used to be, is I understand that a successful day requires context. And the context is always what you're capable of. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think a lot of lifters miss, and I think it's very common in those younger lifters um, who are probably a little bit less experienced and typically fall victim to bashing their head against a brick wall when simply that wall's not going to come down and they're just going to hurt themselves. Um, And the next thing I wanted to talk about, Hani, was a little bit of program design uh, discussion and more so how you approach building muscle with your athletes because we know that a bigger muscle can create more force and a common problem a lot of uh, powerlifters do make is they become married to the big three and they're just continually training, you know, in that three to six rep range and never dedicate uh, significant periods to gaining some size. So my question to you is how do you approach this uh, with your athletes? Well, yeah, and you know, this it's is interesting. I actually read a, an interesting post, I think yesterday from Mike Tashir about the idea of training a movement versus training a muscle. And the, the way I differentiate between when someone needs to do one or the other is that raw lifters, talking specifically about raw lifters, uh, within the context of specific techniques, are going to struggle in the same places if they have good technique and balanced strength. So someone without any significant lagging muscle in a squat that squats with a, a, let's say, a narrow to moderate width stance is going to struggle just above parallel as they try to break through that halfway point on the way up. And that's normal when you're, when you're dealing with, with, let's say just, like I said, a raw squat and balanced strength. Uh, 
uh, if they're pitching forward, that's a different issue. Um, and if their back is rounding, that's a different issue. And if they're losing it lower without either of those things happening, that's a different issue further. On the bench press, uh, someone with balanced strength is going to struggle right at the lockout if they have good technique. They're basically the, the tricep is going to be the weakest muscle in that chain, and it should be. And so it's going to, you know, with a with a well-executed bench press, it's going to pop right off the chest with the leg drive. You're going to get through that mid-range, going to push towards your face. And then if you're going to miss it, you're going to miss it because you couldn't lock out your elbows. And that's what like a, a half kilo over your maximal lift is going to look like. And with the deadlift, if you are a conventional deadlifter, you're going to struggle. Well, this this is actually going to going to vary, but typically at the lockout, especially if you're a round back conventional deadlifter, and that's I wouldn't say again these aren't hard rules, but they're just general guidelines. And alternatively, if you're a sumo deadlifter, you're going to struggle from the floor. Sumo deadlifter with a round back, you're going to struggle at the lockout, and also your legs are going to get in the way of your hands. And so that's the first thing I look at is where does someone struggle in their lifts, and if they fall within all of those categories then I don't think they necessarily need any specific strengthening, let's say specifically catered assistance work outside of the norm. Now I have a general set of assistance work that I, that I will refer to, which is going to focus on upper back work, core work, posterior chain, yep. and all of those things tend to be helpful in improving an athlete on, on the whole. Now, if someone, let's say, misses their bench presses right off their chest and they have great positioning, then they probably have relatively weak pecs and shoulders. And so then, you know, we can work on those things individually. Uh, and so the first the first way I choose assistance work and how I cater off-season training is always to directly address weaknesses. And so if someone has a, a weak particular portion in their movement, despite having strong technique, which is rare, but if that happens, then we, we will address that individual weakness uh, while still not neglecting to train the system as a whole because these are all systems. And so a stronger individual muscle isn't going to be tremendously useful if you don't learn to use that within the chain of muscles that are trying to execute that bigger lift. And so the, this is where the, you know, the idea of specificity comes into play. And essentially having that specific training allows you to use that in a more effective manner. Uh, I've, I've dedicated fully nonspecific off-season programs for myself before, and I found that I came back into training the competition lifts actually feeling worse. And so there's, you know, you have to find that balance between working in that hypertrophy work, addressing your weaknesses with those exercise selections while still training the movement. So you're improving your technical, your technical prowess overall. There's a, there's a hugely understated aspect of skill in performing the individual lifts that contributes to someone's strength is not, not strictly about muscular cross-sectional area. Cause there's a point in every, let's say just drug-free lifters career where their muscles just aren't going to get any bigger. And, and this is, this is the case. They're struggling to put on one pound in a, in a two-year off-season on their stage weight. And, you know, there are guys who would be absolutely ecstatic to be one pound heavier and just as conditioned. And so, you know, you, you take a similar mindset with powerlifting, assuming no body weight change, you're, you're going to reach a point eventually where you're not going to gain a whole bunch more muscle. Hmm. It's going to take probably two decades to get there, but you will get there. And so at, at that point, understanding how to specifically strength and ranges of motion in, in the in the lifts I think is important. Yeah, that's a brilliant answer and a good way to look at it. And moving on from there, do you think that athletes and powerlifters should deliberately spend a period of time away from the competition lifts? Obviously you mentioned that they need to practice and it's always a good idea to have the majority of their work, you know, with the competition lifts. But obviously there's only three 
lifts in the sport, it can be very repetitive and boring over time. And especially if you have those individuals who require change or variation and novelty to stay excited. Um, you mentioned that enjoyment was a huge role in you know, successfully being able to coach someone. So you know, how do you, with your athletes, structure this and how long would you recommend that a lifter could stay away from the competition lifts for? So I generally don't recommend taking extended time entirely away from the competition lifts. Now, if we think about the specificity of your training protocol as a range, you might spend a period of your year on the far on the far low end of the specificity range and then spend let's let's say you spend 60% of your year highly specific not overly specific, but let's say 70%, 75% of your lifts are competition movements. And then you could spend maybe 20% of your year at around the 50% mark, and then that remaining 5% at 25% or below. And I think something like that, what, what that allows us to do is avoid post-competition burnout on the competition movements and helps to reduce the incidence of injury. So something like Raw Nationals coming up comes to mind. There are athletes who've been preparing for that all year just training their asses off and dealing with little aches and pains, potentially injuries in some cases. And so at this point, they are mentally ready to not do the competition lifts for mm. you know two, three, week, two, three weeks. And I think something like that makes sense. Uh, I think taking, let's say, an eight-week off-season protocol and not doing any of the competition lifts is going to be a disservice to, to your performance over the long term unless, unless you are – you know, a, a total, even for total rank novices, I don't think eight weeks away will be good. You can reduce your frequency and improve other lifts. You know, like if you're a terrible front squatter, do like really terrible. Let's say you squat 400 pounds, you can, you can only front squat 135. And let's just say it's because you have incredibly bad core strength. Then you could probably benefit from training that front squat during the course of an off season, but you still want to keep that off, that back squat in rotation because you're still trying to keep that specific adaptation there or at least some degree of it. So, to, to answer your question, I don't think there's utility to a fully nonspecific uh, off-season training protocol, but I definitely think that if someone wanted to, let's say, do competition li- the competition lifts once per week for for the course of an off-season, that could be good. Or let's say someone's a, a low-bar squatter and a conventional deadlifter, and they want to do a cycle with the high-bar squat and the sumo deadlift, I think that would be okay. They're, they're still keeping some degree of slight variation on on their lifts in in rotation but let's say if someone said all right i want to do just leg press just dumbbell presses and only you know weighted hyper extensions for for the course of my whole training cycle then you know that that falls into <laughs> we another category of we should probably have to talk about you know why that's the wrong thing to do and uh, and there are probably very few people who want to do that. Most powerlifters want to keep some degree of that yeah. in, but I, I, I can definitely see the the injury prevention aspect of taking two to three weeks after your your biggest and hardest preps that will probably serve you well in terms of keeping you healthy. Awesome. And in terms of peaking and tapering uh, for meet day, obviously we know that a successful performance on a platform uh, is a consequence of reducing fatigue um and obviously enhancements in performance can vary um so what are 
your recommendations for tapering the time frames and the amount of volume reduced. I know that there's a huge degree of inter-individual uh, variation in this, but just some general guidelines for the guys and those listening. So um, before I before I get into this, I'll just give a plug. We did a we did a whole podcast on peaking that's like an hour and a half long for the yeah. Strength Athlete podcast. It's a, a great episode. It, um, I would highly recommend checking that out. That'll give you a, a more in depth answer there with a few different perspectives. But uh, as a general rule, give and, us and the this cliffs. is going to vary. Yeah, the cliffs. <laughs> I'll give you the cliffs. Um, the you know, this is going to vary individually, but what, what I'll usually apply, let's say, with someone during their, their first training taper will be that we'll keep 90% of the training volume all the way up until two weeks out and intensity as well. And basically working up to openers are slightly above either two or three weeks out, depending on how strong someone is. Further away from the competition, the stronger your lift is. So let's, you know, if you're a 700 pound deadlifter, you could probably take your deadlift opener or just above two or three weeks out. And then just some moderately heavy stuff in the weeks subsequent to that. Uh, but the actual week of the meet, you, generally people are looking at something like a 30 to 40% reduction in squat volume, 50 to 75% in deadlift volume, and probably around 25 to 35% in bench press volume. Bench press keeping the most in there as it does tend to hold up pretty well. To, regardless of volume, it doesn't tend to make performance go up a whole bunch. And I don't know whether that's because of the muscles involved or because of the relatively low loads. So if you're talking about 500 pound benchers, you might, you know, you might end up using a more traditional training or tapering protocol. So, so usually, uh, like I was saying, it's generally people will go through, a let's say, let's say a 12 week training cycle. So they have four weeks of volume accumulation with four weeks of intensification and then a four week peaking protocol thereafter. Um, their, their highest point of volume and intensity is going to be towards the end of that intensity protocol because basically you build up that training volume in the first four weeks you build up the intensity within that volume over the second four weeks and then you kind of gradually shift off the volume in the last four so in, in let's say three weeks out you'll you'll have either your heaviest or second heaviest lifts volume still at full bore uh the subsequent week you'll work up to openers this is the week prior to the week of the meet you'll work up to your openers or something just slightly above and maybe reduce one or two sets total per day. Probably just one set would be enough per movement per day. And then the week of the meet generally will be some triples, doubles, or singles in the 75 to 80% range. Uh, probably 70% for deadlifts, 75% for squats, 80% for bench press. And, uh, you know, obviously these are numbers that I'm pulling out of a hat here. These are going to be highly different for everyone. But this is, this is a decent place you could start at. Uh, more or less keeping most of everything in all the way up until right before the meet. And generally, as a function of, uh, it does tend to go in line with body weight, but I think it plays more in line with how strong you are, yep. kind of keeping your heaviest lifts furthest, further away from the competition. And I think it's just important for people to understand that a well-designed taper and peak doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have this magical enhancement of performance that sees you add 20 kilos to, <clears throat> excuse me, your previous, you know, uh, best lift in training, you know, a few weeks. If before. anybody, if anybody has that program, feel yes, free to pass it on. I, I would love it. And uh, from memory, there was Lemuer in 2012 did some research and found that. It was a two to five percent increase in performance, and is this typically yeah. what you've seen in practice? Have there been cases where you've seen more or significantly less? 
there are some people that taper really well, really, really, really well. Uh, but I mean, e- even those people at absolute best, you're talking six or seven percent. And that's in a, in a rare instance on a single lift that their old max probably wasn't that hard to begin with. And so it, the thing is, it's hard to quantify how much people are getting out of it, aside from the fact that they feel better. If someone feels better than they did in training after a taper, I consider it, or rather, if someone feels better after a taper on meet day than they did in training leading up to that meet, I consider it a success, period. And that's that's what I'm looking for, is for someone to come out of that taper feeling fresh, but not unpracticed with the lifts. And that that really is more of the indicator of whether you've done it appropriately, in my opinion. Obviously, hitting a new max is great, but uh, let's just say that you get the five percent out of it. I mean, that's that's ten kilos on a on a on a two hundred kilo squat. Yeah, that's ten kilos on a two hundred kilo squat. So it's that's a substantial amount. But when you're talking about how you plan your PRs, if you have a two hundred kilo lift, it's, you're probably planning five or seven and a half kilo improvements anyway. So, you know, just based on your plan, you should be planning on that. And then, you know, being conservative from there as needed or, you know, generally having some reach goal built within the plan that maybe accounts for that potential for percentage of overperformance. But I would say, like you said, about I think aiming for about three or four percent right in the middle of that range is probably the most realistic. Awesome. And furthering from that on the day. You know, powerlifting is a unique sport in that, you know, you've said this yourself in previous podcasts, the frequency of competition is low uh, and the nature of the sport means you only get nine lifts several times a year. So how do you personally deal with the nerves and coach athletes to calm the jitters, honey? And again, guys, go listen to the TSA podcast. What uh, are those clips uh, from that episode where you discuss this? Uh, we actually haven't done an episode on meet day coaching. Um but we, we've obviously mentioned it a few times yeah. uh, in, intermixed with several. Meat day nerves are the only way to get better about that is to do more meats. And, you know, this is one of the funny things about people who, you know, they want to wait to do their first competition. And you're going to do terrible if you put all that pressure on yourself at your first competition and expect to overperform. It's never going to happen. Uh, you are probably going to miss three to five lifts and you're going to feel terrible about your day. You're better off going, doing a conservative practice meet. You guys actually have are very fortunate in Australia because you do the amateur lot. meets. Yeah. And those are and they're unsanctioned, and so you can compete in those without having to worry about PA's vicious claws coming down on you. And Robert Wilkes. <laughs> yeah, good old Robert Wilkes. Um, the the something like that, an opportunity to practice the environment, to understand the timing, to understand the warmups, to have people tell you, to, to have them actually tell you, be like, nah, that wasn't a good lift. Instead of getting the bro fist after your high squat, you get a, a big fat, a big fat red light, you know? Yeah. And, and being prepared to, to shake that off and to go back and to do it again in front of the same people who just told you that you weren't worthy, the, to be, to be adequately prepared for that takes a little bit of practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, ultimately the, the best answer you can get for improving your meat day nerves is to do more meats because eventually it just becomes another training day. And that's, that's ultimately what you want, where it's a training day where you're amped up and you're doing your lifting in front of your friends. And I don't know about you, but for me, if I'm lifting around my friends, I always feel fired up. I feel better. I I feel, I feel like these guys are watching me and supporting me and I feel, I feel lifted up and kind of elevated right now. And so let's let's do some big shit, you know. Like I, f- I feel ready for this, and that's how I feel in competitions as well. I don't I don't get overly excited to the point where I'm nervous because I practice the lifts in the gym in a way that 
I'd be ready for a competition any day. You could come and sit three judges around my swats most of the time when I'm not hurting. And I'm going to get three white lights all the time. And same with the deadlifts and the bench presses. And I hold myself accountable to that standard all the time. And this is something I said to a client recently that actually kind of resonated with me is the best thing you can ever do for making sure that your lifts are always going to be good is holding yourself accountable to the competition standard all the time. You should always, if you're doing a if you're not doing a touch and go bench, your pauses should always be legitimate. If you're squatting, they should always be to depth, barring some sort of injury or pain reason why they can't. And if you're deadlifting, you should always reach lockout. You should always hold your lockouts, and you should always make sure your grip is strong enough to hold on to anything that you're going to attempt to pick up. And in that instance, you, you don't have to worry about those little technical changes at a competition because there are no technical changes at a competition. Everything is exactly the same. And the only thing that changes is the mental stimulus. And in being prepared for that, I think you enable yourself to do the best that you can. Uh, when, when it comes to knowing the rules, let's say it's your first competition, maybe taking a glance through the lift execution section of the rule book, attending the lifter meeting. Uh, you cannot overemphasize attending the lifter meeting and, and asking questions if you don't understand anything. The, the reps are quite literally giving that meeting to give you an opportunity to understand what they're looking for, how you're, how you're expected to execute these lifts, and to ask any questions you have if you don't understand anything. Definitely. A lot of really good points there. And mental training can further enhance, you know, the physical practice of, you know, performing the competition lifts. And there was a pretty cool study by Slimani uh, and others in 2017 that studied elite level kickboxers um, utilizing motivational self-talk and first person like kinematic imagery and found that it reduced both stress uh, and improved performance. So, Obviously, that's just one study, can't be uh, looked at as the be-all and end-all, but in my experience with my athletes, this kind of training and focusing on affirmations and mental imagery has been beneficial. Um, do you do this yourself and with your athletes? And if so, honey, um, what are some of the things that you can advise guys to do to improve their mental training? Uh, so this is something I spend a, a little less time on. Uh, it's something that I probably should take some time to learn a little bit more about. And the, the reason I spend a little less time on it is because I'm, I'm not so well versed in it and, uh, and not so much in a negative manner. I would say, I understand the value of it. I just, I don't have a deep understanding of it. And so I try not to instruct people on things that I don't really understand. Um, that being said, I do understand the power of self-talk and essentially something as simple, you know, it's, before you go to do some sort of task, you know, you look, you look inside and you say, you got this. And something as simple as that can go such a long way towards that affirmation of feeling like you've got it. And I mean, confidence really is key. Even, even going into a lift that you have a 0% chance of getting, you, you're going to do better going into that confident. You're going to execute that more to the standard of how you want all of your lifts to look than you would going in concerned about whether or not you're going to have the strength, the ability to do it. And, mentally preparing yourself to to be confident whatever that may take for some people it's self-talk for other people it's visualization and i think those two probably capture most people and so for for me it's more so visualization i i try to i try to see myself doing my competition lifts in the weeks lifting up or the weeks leading up to the competition i i sit down and you know i'll spend you know, you spend enough time twiddling your thumbs on a daily basis. We all do. And, you know, I dedicate some of that twiddling thumbs time to specifically just watching myself at my next competition do my lifts. 
and and I see it and I execute them and I complete them. And so when I walk out there and there's a new load on the bar that I haven't necessarily moved around before, I've moved it around 15 or 30 or 45 times in my head leading up to this competition. So mentally, I'm ready to approach that. And so visualization is definitely more of a thing for me. Um, I think trying both is important. You can try. Exactly. You, you can be in training and uh, the the one thing I try to avoid is is negative self talk or or negative negative affirm well I wouldn't really call it negative affirmation but essentially when negative you're dialogue, yeah. yeah yeah negative dialogue is the term I wanted when you're handling an athlete and you know you you say something like don't stop pushing it's it's like well you know I obviously wasn't planning to stop pushing <laughs> um, the I, I'm not a fan of that some people prefer that that's uh, I think it probably works for fewer people than it doesn't wait. Yeah. Does, yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. I said we that correctly. Um, the double negative there threw me off. I don't think it works for many, but obviously everybody's different, and every coach is different, and everyone has a different approach. But I try to focus on the positive, and try to encourage people to do the same within themselves. Awesome, awesome. Well, honey, you blew that out of the park. You gave so much uh, information and in-depth response to those questions uh and i really appreciate you coming on the show guys make sure you check honey out uh on the ig as well as on youtube uh, the strength athlete these guys put out great content uh their podcast is absolutely awesome if you're a powerlifter or athlete and you want to learn more about what these guys do please go and check it out all the best with uh your future competitions honey and your athletes and we'll speak to you next time Thanks, Jacob. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that.